0: You take your Bibles, not slowly but quickly, turn to Isaiah chapter 40 along with me. Isaiah, if you have trouble finding it, if you open your Bible to the middle roughly, you'll probably come close. Isaiah is a big book, lengthy book, kind of in the middle of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 40 is where we'll be this morning. For the next few weeks through the season of Advent, this being the first Sunday of Advent, we're going to look at the subject of Christmas comfort. I think it's a message we all need to hear. There are many comforts that are associated with Christmas. Comforts of home, comforts of a Christmas tree and a roaring fire and family and food and Parties, Christmas music of all kinds, Christmas gifts given, Christmas gifts received. All these things bring a certain level of comfort to us. Comfort of the familiar. Comfort of memories. Comfort of beauty and of pleasure. Comfort of rest and the comfort of tradition. And all these things are... Great and wonderful, but that's not the kind of comfort I want us to focus our attention on for the next couple of weeks leading up to Christmas. When I speak of Christmas comfort, I'm not talking about the trappings and the traditions of the season, but rather the truth that undergirds the Christmas season, the truth that inspires the celebration of Christmas, Christmas comfort that comes from the truth of the gospel message that the Son of God has come into this world to save sinners. Christmas comfort, true Christmas comfort that finds its source in God's great gift, the greatest gift of all, the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. We read it already together, John three sixteen. but let me read it again. For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Those are words of comfort. That is a message of Christian comfort. We all need Christmas comfort. So many are struggling and discouraged. Maybe you're here this morning and you're facing something you never thought you'd be facing. Perhaps you've got your own health issues or the health issues of a loved one. Maybe you're struggling with a broken relationship or some financial challenge or general uncertainty about the future. Perhaps you're grieving the loss of a loved one, wondering how you're going to cope this Christmas with an empty chair around the table. All of these things are realities of living in a broken world a world broken by sin and sin's curse. The Bible teaches us, however, that in the midst of this broken, sin-cursed world, we have a God who is a God of comfort. That is, He's a God that is concerned for His people and a God who ministers comfort to His people in the midst of all their sufferings. So Christmas comfort starts with understanding who God is. That He is the God of comfort. That He comforts us in all our afflictions. That is what the Bible says about God in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God is a comforting God. He is the God of all comfort, and He comforts us in all our afflictions. That's the promise of His Word. And so this morning, we're going to look more at this God of all comfort and His message of comfort that He gives to His people in the midst of their suffering and discouragement. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 40 as I read the first five verses. The prophet Isaiah records the words of the Lord. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Indeed, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this greatest of all gifts given on our behalf, the gift of your Son. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. And as we reflect upon the incarnation of the eternal Son of God this Christmas season, Lord, I pray that we would afresh visit the old stories that we know so well. But we would see them with new eyes, with the eyes of faith, with the eyes of hope and with the eyes of comfort. Comfort, Lord, that you speak over us. Comfort that you speak into the midst of our pain, and grief, and sorrow. Lord, I pray that you would comfort weary souls here today. Comfort those who are not sure how they can take another step and live another day. Bring comfort, Lord, supernatural comfort to their hearts. Through your word of comfort, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning in Isaiah chapter 40, the first five verses, serves as the opening text of Handel's Messiah. That, of course, is a a work of art, a work of music that is heard often at this season. And if you haven't already heard it this season, I urge you to listen to it today. Or at least the first four songs. Because the first four songs from Handel's Messiah are taken, lifted, right out of this text. I personally recommend the London Symphony Orchestra's version under the direction of Sir Colin Davis. So maybe, you know, just give Mariah Carey a break. You've probably had enough of that already this season. And tune into something a little bit different. I listen to it every year at Christmas, and it's a glorious reminder of the truths that we celebrate every Christmas time and all year long. But these first four songs are taken right from these verses, and the opening lyric of Handel's Messiah is... Comfort ye my people. A message we all need to hear. So this morning, let's look a little more closely at these verses and seek to understand their message and their meaning for us today. As we seek to understand God's word through the prophet Isaiah, we're going to see together three ways in which God comforts us in all our afflictions. Three ways in which the God of all comfort comforts us in all our afflictions. Now, in order to understand Isaiah 40 in its original context, we have to understand a bit of the historical situation that surrounds it. Isaiah is writing during the time of the divided kingdom, when the nation of Israel was divided into two separate kingdoms, with the ten tribes of the northern kingdom separated from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is... By the time Isaiah writes chapter 40, he has already been exiled. It's already been carried off into exile as a judgment for its great sin of idolatry and rebellion. Isaiah ministered as a prophet of God in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah and around the city of Jerusalem from 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. He ministered as a prophet during the reigns of King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz and King Hezekiah. And like the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom was beset with all kinds of sin and idolatry, with some kings and eras being better than others. But on the whole, the kingdom of Judah was going in the same rebellious, idolatrous direction as the northern kingdom had gone, and they were facing a similar judgment. Exile, destruction, and death. So in order to understand the words of comfort that come to us in Isaiah chapter 40, you have to understand first the words of judgment that are pronounced in Isaiah chapter 39, the previous chapter. So you won't have to turn far to join me in Isaiah 39. Look with me at verse 1 of Isaiah 39. Isaiah records for us that at that time... Merodach, Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he'd been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. All right, let's park it right there for just a moment. King Hezekiah showed this. Babylonian entourage, these dignitaries, the king's son, all his treasuries, perhaps in an effort to impress him, perhaps as a thank you for the gift, the gracious gift that they had sent in light of his sickness, probably in hopes to form some kind of a friendship, a cooperation, an alliance of nations with the Babylonians against the Assyrians, Hezekiah knows what has happened to these northern tribes as they were carried off into exile and defeated by the Assyrians. And he's probably hoping against hope that he can form some kind of an alliance with the Babylonians and thereby defend himself and his kingdom against the Assyrians. Now, let's pick it up at verse 5 of 39. Chapter 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. So God is going to speak into this situation. He's going to render his verdict. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, For there will be peace and truth in my days. Days of judgment, of death and destruction were coming to Judah. Days of defeat and exile yes in part because of hezekiah's foolishness but also because of judah's persistent unfaithfulness and idolatry this judgment wouldn't come for about another hundred years not until about 586 bc when the babylonians attacked and they sacked jerusalem Jerusalem was completely destroyed. Its riches were plundered. Its people were taken into captivity in Babylon. Just as Isaiah had prophesied here in Isaiah 39. Now the contrast between Isaiah chapter 39 and Isaiah 40 couldn't be starker. Isaiah 39 is dark with words of God's impending judgment and Isaiah 40 brings the light of God's comfort and hope. The contrast between Isaiah 39 and 40 reminds us that in every generation and at every time, God is doing different things simultaneously. God is at the same time judging sin and rebellion. All the while, He is Offering words of comfort and consolation and hope to a faithful remnant. In every generation and every time, God is doing both things. We've been reading of God's judgment upon sinful and rebellious people in Romans chapter 1. As God gives them over to the sinfulness that's in their hearts. And lets them run rampant in their sin and rebellion. And let it take it to the places that it ultimately will take them, which is destruction. Even at those times when God gives people over, gives cultures over, gives nations over to their own sin, nevertheless, God is still ministering comfort at the same time to the faithful remnant that remains. And so it is here. Isaiah 39 and 40 play side by side, like two pieces of a hinge. Functioning together, God is at the same time judging a nation and He is at the same time offering words of comfort and hope to a nation. So here, in Isaiah 40, we see the first of three ways in which God comforts us in all our afflictions. First of all, God speaks words of comfort. God speaks words of comfort. We see that in verse 1 as well as the first part of verse 2. Immediately on the heels of God's statement of national judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, God speaks words of comfort to the faithful. Notice what he says. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Oswald, in his commentary on the first line of chapter 40, states that, If dramatic effect is desired, the opening words of this verse can hardly be surpassed. Right on the heels of this dark message of doom and judgment comes comforting words of hope and assurance. The dark night of judgment has dramatically given way to the morning light of comfort God speaks comfort to His grieving and troubled people. Notice that this word comfort is spoken not just once but twice. It's as though God knows we need to hear it repeated. Comfort, oh comfort my people. This repetition of the same word conveys emotional intensity as well as underscores the urgency and importance of the command. It is a command. God's mouthpieces, God's spokespeople are to pronounce words of comfort over the faithful remnant. God is commanding Isaiah first and foremost and the prophets in general and ultimately all who speak God's word to speak words of comfort to His people. Now no doubt there will be words of judgment that will need to be shared as well. Words of rebuke words of correction but those words of judgment of rebuke are always to be tempered and informed by words of comfort words of comfort that come to us in the gospel words that remind us that despite the fact of our continuing need of correction and rebuke nevertheless there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus that we are fully accepted in God's love and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Words of rebuke, words of correction are always and need always to be tempered by words of comfort, words of gospel comfort. To speak words of comfort is to speak words which will bring encouragement, hope, refreshment and even pleasure it is to speak words that will console the grieving that will strengthen the weak that will lift up the downcast and that will energize the weary god is concerned that his people not be overwhelmed by his pronouncements of judgment he wants the faithful remnant not to be overcome with grief and despair and so he orders those who speak God's word in every generation to deliver a message not only of rebuke and correction, but most importantly and most emphatically, a word of comfort. And it's not just a single message of comfort that people need to hear. It's a repeated message of comfort proclaimed by and to God's people. The command to comfort here is in the present tense. It means that it is a message that is to be repeated again and again and again, over and again. Words of comfort proclaimed to God's people. These words of comfort are uttered in the context of a covenant relationship. Notice that. The command to comfort is to be carried out for the good of God's people. Notice it says, comfort my people. God is wanting those who are His to be comforted. These are God's chosen ones, His redeemed. These are those who, in the words of the hymn writer, have been ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Not only do we see this covenant relationship in God's declaration of them as my people, His own possession, but we also see that they are, that God is described as your God This God who comforts us describes Himself as our God. Our own, the God of our own possession. The God who is ours. These are strongly personal and covenantal terms being used by God. Similar to what the psalmist says in Psalm 100 and verse 3. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. We belong to Him. We are His. And He is ours. Notice also in the first part of verse 2 that this message of comfort is a message of kindness. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. It's the word of, that is used sometimes of, of, of sweetness that is spoken between two lovers. Speak kindly here is literally speak to the heart. It is to speak tenderly and affectionately. So the content of the message is words of comfort and the tone of the message is to be done with tenderness and affection and kindness. Now aren't you glad that this is our God? That He is the God of all comfort? That He doesn't deal with us in the way that our sins deserve but because of His mercy and grace He speaks words of kindness and tenderness and affection and comfort and consolation over us. He's the God who in the midst of our grief and discouragement speak words of hope and comfort. He's concerned that we hear words of comfort and consolation in the darkest night of our soul. He responds to our tears and our fears and our griefs and our pains with tenderness and affection. Our God is not unfeeling or unresponsive to us. He stores our tears in a bottle. The psalmist says so caring and affectionate he is toward us that in our time of deepest need he comes not with words of correction but words of comfort. He sees us and knows our frame that we are but dust and he responds to us with gentleness, grace and love. So because of our Lord's comfort, We can say along with the psalmist, Psalm 94, 17 through 19. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up when my anxious thoughts multiply within me. Can anybody relate to that? When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Your consolations lift me up. And give me joy and hope to carry on. Such is the God of all comfort. And we know that Jesus Christ fulfilled the role of the suffering servant laid out in Isaiah. And In an Isaiah 42, he's described as one who will not extinguish a smoldering wick, who will not snap off and break a bent branch. Jesus himself is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus himself knows our sorrows. Jesus himself provides comfort in time of need. God speaks words of comfort over us. Secondly, we see that God gives reasons for comfort. God gives reasons for comfort. These aren't just empty words. God backs up this call to comfort God's people with reasons for comfort. Solid reasons why in any situation the believer can have comfort and hope in God. The first reason we see we we can have comfort because our suffering will have an end. Our suffering will have an end. Isaiah 40, verse 2, call out to her that her warfare has ended those who speak words of comfort and kindness are to call out to her that is jerusalem that is god's people that her warfare has ended the word warfare refers to a period of hard service a time of intense suffering now remember isaiah is prophesying of a coming day in which god's people's suffering from exile will end But their time of suffering hadn't even begun yet. In fact, it won't begin for another hundred years. For Isaiah chapter 39 is prophesying of something that's going to come in a century from now, the exile. And yet Isaiah speaks to a time of this suffering as having already come to an end. Of a time when Judah would return from exile to the promised land. So what's going on here? Well, I think a few things are happening. First of all, God speaks of the end of their suffering as though it was already a present reality. It was already as good as over. The Bible sometimes speaks this way, that a future event is so certain that it can be spoken of as having already arrived. That is because God is the God of history. That is because God is a God who transcends time He knows the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is over it all, and so it is all the same to Him. A day to Him is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. He stands over it all. He is the sovereign one over time and over eternity, and over all the events of men. So He can speak of a future event as though it's already occurred, for to Him it already has. This also reminds us that our suffering always has an expiration date. And so it was for the kingdom of Judah, and so it is even more so for us. There's coming a time when there will be no more grief, no more pain, no more death, no more sickness, no more suffering. And Jesus will wipe every tear From our eyes. Suffering will not last forever. Here's a public service announcement. This is not heaven. I know, I know. Seems like it right now in this moment. No, this is not heaven. We're not promised a a carefree life, a trouble free life. In fact, we've been promised that in this world you will have tribulation. That's what Jesus said. We're going to have sufferings and difficulties and hardships and experience losses, great griefs of the soul. It's part of living in a broken and sin-cursed world. But rest assured that all suffering has an expiration date. An expiration date that has been assigned by the Lord Jesus. By God Himself. A time when all suffering is going to come to an end. It's a reminder that better days are coming. We look for another city, don't we? A city without foundations. A city whose maker and builder is God. There's a better world coming. A world without sin. A world without sickness. A world without suffering and without death and without grief and without pain. God will be faithful to His promises. And He has promised to end our suffering once and for all. But there's a second reason for our comfort, and that we can have comfort because our iniquity has been removed. Again, verse 2, Speak kindly to Jerusalem, call out to her that her iniquity has been removed. The word removed here means paid for or redeemed just as Judah's iniquity had been paid for or redeemed through its suffering of 70 years of exile, there would come a time when God would say that's enough and He will remove the suffering of exile that had been caused by their sin. And of course, we know that in a much Greater sense, this is true for us because of the gospel on the cross. Jesus has paid the price for our sins and He has redeemed us and set us free. The price of our iniquity has been paid for. And this fact should bring us great comfort that God has sent His Son to be born of a virgin, born as a man, born that He might Fulfill all righteousness, that he might always do the will of the Father. Jesus, throughout his lifetime, always did what was pleasing to the Father. Jesus, throughout his lifetime, fulfilled God's law in every respect, every day of his life, every moment of his life. This was, of course, so that Jesus could go to the cross as a sinless substitute. And die in your place and mine. Take your sin and mine. Take your guilt and mine upon Himself. Dying for our sin, not His own. Dying for our guilt, not His own. Dying as a substitute. Dying that we might have life through faith in Him. That's just what Jesus did. Jesus paid the price in full for all our sin and all our guilt. Jesus cried out Himself from the cross and He said, it is finished, paid in full. So, we have reason to have comfort because our iniquity has been removed. Aren't you glad about that this morning? You know what that means? It means that your biggest problem in life has been solved. The biggest problem you will ever face is that you are guilty before a holy God, the holy God who made you, the holy God to whom you are accountable, and your biggest problem has been solved forever, eternally, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your iniquity has been paid for. A third reason for comfort is because the Lord has abundantly pardoned our sins. Tell her, speak kindly to her that she has received from the Lord's hand Double for all her sins. See, Judah's time of exile was sufficient punishment for her sins. There would be a time of restoration in the land. But again, I think there's something greater going on here as this verse, verse points us ultimately to the gospel. The idea of paying double for all of Judah's sin is that it was amply paid for. It was generously paid for it was abundantly paid for and as this was true for judah it was all the more true at the gospel and at the cross we might say it this way though our sins they were many his mercy is what as we sing more This mercy has come from god himself to us from the lord's hand The Messiah is pictured in Isaiah as the suffering servant. You're not far from there. I want you to turn along with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, where the suffering servant's ministry of atonement is laid out. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me of Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, speaking of that suffering servant, the coming Messiah, which Jesus fulfilled perfectly. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us is turned away To his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is the language of substitution. This is the language of redemption. This is the language of atonement. One for the other. A perfect for the sinner. A righteous one for the unrighteous. And that's what Jesus was for us. He fulfilled these words as the Messiah who suffered in our place for our sins and paid them in full. What comfort there is in knowing that as great as our sins are, God's mercy and grace in Jesus are so much greater than all our sins. God doesn't just comfort us with kind words that itch, that scratch our itching ears, but He also gives us solid reasons for our comfort. Reasons that are grounded in the gospel. Our suffering will end. Our iniquity has been renewed, removed. And our sins are abundantly pardoned. Finally this morning we see that God's nearness brings comfort. His nearness, verses 3 through 5. In verse 3 we read, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. One might ask the question, how has this message of comfort been made possible? These verses tell us how. God's words of comfort are secured by His nearness to us. His promise to come to us, to meet our need, to deliver us. Ultimately, our comfort is rooted in God's nearness to us. This section begins with an exclamation. A voice is calling. If this was Shakespeare, it might sound like this. Hark! A voice I hear. The effect is this. Listen, a voice is out there crying out. I can hear it in the distance. Shh! Listen! And what is this voice saying? Verses 3 and 4. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. The message that is being cried out is prepare the way for the Lord. Make room for him. In ancient times, advance teams would sometimes go ahead of kings and other important figures and prepare the way seeking to make the way smoother and more welcoming for the king's arrival. It happens today. The president has an advance team that works months in advance of his schedule and they go ahead and make sure everything is secure and everything is clear and the freeways are all clear. John the Baptist quoted this verse as he explained who he was and what he was doing. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 23 it says, this is the testimony of John the Baptist, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Because all the crowds were coming out to John as he was baptizing people. Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You want to know who I am? I'll tell you who I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Get ready. Make yourselves ready for the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist was preaching a message of repentance and faith in preparation for the first coming of Messiah. Messiah. Calling people to repent of their sins and trust in God's provision for salvation. Calling people to cut down the mountains of their own pride and rebellion. In in lowliness of heart, submit themselves to the coming Messiah. And that's a message that's still needed today. As that Christmas carol we all sing, Joy to the World says, Let every heart prepare Him room. Is your heart ready for the Messiah this Christmas season? Isaiah 40 verse 4 says that the whole earth is called upon here to be made ready for the arrival of God. Every valley is lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground is made a plain and the rugged terrain transformed into this broad, easy traversed valley. The earth is to prepare itself for the arrival of the most unusual of visitors. But who is it that is coming? Look at verse 5. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Or if you're singing and you've got the Messiah running through your head, handles Messiah, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. The glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, our covenant-keeping God will be revealed God is going to come to earth in all his glory in glory and power now I believe this saw a partial fulfillment in the first coming of Jesus John 1 14 says the word became flesh the eternal son of God became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory is of the only begotten from the father glory just like the father's glory full of grace and truth, divine glory, incarnate. And yet the earth was not fully prepared for the Messiah's first coming, was it? Did they pull out all the stops for Jesus' first coming? Luke 2, verses 6 and 7 reminds us that while Joseph and Mary were there in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth And she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. No room in the inn. The king of kings laid in a manger, laid in an animal trough? Talk about humble beginnings. Someone didn't get the memo about the arrival of the king. Why weren't people ready to receive the king of kings? Well, because Jesus' first coming was His coming as the suffering servant. It was a coming in humility. It was a coming to not be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. But rest assured, when Jesus returns a second time, at His second coming, all the world will see Him in power and glory. Isaiah continues, he says, All flesh will see it together. This is going to be a universal revelation of the appearance of the glory of the Lord. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back as a victorious king. He's coming back in power and great glory. My question for you today is Are you ready for him? Have you prepared your heart for his arrival? Have you done the necessary things to be ready for him? Say, Well, what must I do? Confess your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that He is who God said He is. He is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. 1 Peter 4.13 reminds us that to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Jesus is going to return in great power and glory. Are you ready? How can we be sure this is really going to happen? I mean, Isaiah wrote these words some 2,500 years ago. And they still haven't come to final fulfillment. How do we know it's really going to happen? Verse 5, the end of verse 5, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Because God said it's going to happen. And as Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, will he not make it good? You better believe he will. To the weary hearts of his people, weighed down by sufferings, the Lord speaks words of kindness and comfort. Words of tender care and hope-filled encouragement. Comforting words centered upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and anchored in the blessed hope of the glorious return of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Comforting words that remind us that our sins have all been paid for in full and that our iniquity has been taken away. Take comfort this morning that all suffering will one day end. That indeed, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then your iniquity has been removed. Your sins have been atoned for fully by the indescribable gift of God's Son. Beloved, we have reason for comfort. Comfort all year through because of Christmas comfort. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the comfort we have can know this time of year that doesn't come from tinsel or pretty lights or warm drinks but comfort that is grounded in the gospel truth that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you, Jesus, for taking away our sins and paying the price in full for our guilt and our iniquity. May these words give us comfort and consolation in the midst of a world still broken by sin, a world full of suffering and disappointment and grief. Lord, may your consolations give us joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.